Welcome to the Public Grounding. July is National Minority Mental Health Awareness Month. The purpose is to bring awareness to the unique struggles that racial and ethnic minority communities face regarding mental illness in the United States. To begin our conversation, I will speak with Dr. Jamika Woody Cooper, a licensed psychologist and recipient of a Fulbright Fellowship. Dr. Jamika Cooper, welcome to the Public Morality. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. When the term is used, mental health, is there a specific de definition or is that a catch-all phrase that could mean myriad things to myriad people? Well, typically when we talk about mental health, we're talking about things that impact people's lives and things like typically what people, when they say mental health, they usually mean things like depression, anxiety. So the health of your mind, the health of your thoughts, the health of your mood is really what we're referring to when we talk about mental health. Well, then, in, in that context, talk about the significance, uh, given that July is Minority Mental Health Month. Why is that, that public acknowledgement significant? It's really important because, well, for one, there's really no other time in the year where the focus is only on minority mental health. And I think it's important to look at it because what people used to think about 20 years ago was that only white people in this country suffer from depression or anxiety. But now what we know in 2022 is that all people suffer from mental health issues and minorities or people from marginalized groups usually have additional burdens that really kind of tack on to and increase what they experience as their mental health. You know, you know when you said that, I, I remember uh, growing up hearing stories about, I'll just, I'll just make something up. Uh, you know, cousin Willie, uh, poor Willie, he was walking across the bridge and slipped on the ice and fell into the river and drowned. You know, uh, it's quite possible looking back that cousin Willie just couldn't take it anymore, whatever it, it, it was. And so you have sort of generational Denial. Is that is that something that's consistent with, with, with your work? Yes, it is. I see that in my um, African-American patients, definitely my other minority groups as well. It's just this whole what is kind of passed from generation to generation is just get through it, just suck it up. And if you think back to slavery, like there wasn't any time or space for you to talk about you being sick you being overwhelmed or stressed because we didn't have those luxuries back then. So a lot of that has been passed down. Now, now I recently uh, read a study from the American Psychiatric Association stating that more than half of the people that have some form of mental illness don't receive the necessary help for their particular disorder. I would imagine, Assuming those numbers are, are accurate, and uh, I'll let you tell me if they're accurate, but assuming they're accurate, I would imagine that phenomenon is even more acute in, in communities of color. Yes, I would probably assume that that number is a, a, bit, a bit higher for, for minorities, and simply because, one, um, it's underrepresented, so lots of times it's coming from self-report, so individuals would have to say or admit that they are suffering with a mental illness, so if self-reporting is not accurate, then that's going to make the numbers go down. Also, if um, individuals believe that like, where, where are these 
these numbers, this, these statistics gonna go? Like how honest can they be? They would could have concerns about them getting back to their family, their work, um, their church, any of those things. So I'm pretty sure the numbers are down um, for various reasons. Then we think about availability of resources. There are a lot less resources for mental health and minority communities. So one of the things I'm, I'm gaining from your last answer is that part of the challenge here, maybe the part, part of the challenge for uh, Minority Awareness Month is an overall trust in a system. Yes, the overall trust in the system is, but when, I, when I'm sitting in the room with somebody in therapy, lots of times they've had multiple losses in their lives. So when you talk about trust in a system, they've lost the trust in a system. And I think the kind of the pandemic played a role in that, but also issues surrounding the pandemic, racial and social justice issues like George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, and those type of things being televised and us seeing them, it makes a lot of people from marginalized and minority groups lose confidence in the system that they live in and work in, and they lose confidence in feeling like the system is going to represent or treat them justly because that's not what they've seen. It seems, at least to me, uh, the strength that strength, however, def however one defines strength, has been adopted as a so-called uh, American virtue. Sin and since mental health is all often seen as the antithesis of that, those with mental disorders could feel an additional sociological burden that 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 in fact they are weak. And I wondered how you saw that. I think many minorities do feel an additional burden of needing to appear stronger, or maybe a different way to say this is, they have the additional burden of having to be resilient. They don't have the luxury of, oh my God, this is so bad, I can sit in it for two or three months. They don't have that luxury, they have to keep going, they have to continue to work, they have to continue to take care of their families, they have to continue to be pillars in their communities and families because there are no other options. So I think the luxury of being able to decide, you know what, I'm depressed, I'm just gonna not take a part in life. That's a luxury that many people from minority groups don't have. Now, one of the words that I would associate with mental illness is stigma. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, wanna, I wanna break down some of the various uh, aspects of stigma. Uh, and well, first of all, let's just talk in general terms. Let's just talk in general terms about the role of stigma, in particular with communities of color and, and, and mental health. The role of stigma is really huge when we think about communities of color, because for so many years and so many generations, people of color have been told that they don't have the same opportunities. Um, they've been shown that, that they don't have the same opportunities. And, opportunities, luxuries, resources. And when we think about resources and opportunities, healthcare is a resource and opportunity. So we've known for some time that there has been some discrepancy in healthcare between minority communities and white communities, but mental health hasn't really been a part of that conversation until recently. So when we think about stigma, the stigma is in the black community in particular that uh, black people don't have mental health issues because many of us were raised in churches, Baptist churches, where we were told that if you are depressed, just pray about it. Just come to church, go to Bible school, go to Sunday school, and that will fix it. And if it doesn't fix it, that means you're not praying hard enough or you're not reading the right scriptures. 
So part of what people have been raised and educated on religiously really impacts how they feel about their mental health and if they feel like they can't admit that they have a mental health issue. So, 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 I mean, you, you, sort you, you sort of touched on it. So, uh, uh I was going to ask you about the historical black church and the role that it has and given the role that it has in black lives, has that, um, perspective you just offered about, uh, religion, especially in the, in the African-American community, has that role changed at all or is it still dominated by that ethos you just, you just pointed out? Um, that's a good question. And I think if you look at different generations, different cohorts of generations, you see differences. So for instance, if you look at baby boomers or the silent generation, which is older than them, you're going to see that many of them still hold that belief that, you know, religiously, there are ways you can get through mental illness. You don't need to go see a stranger and talk about your problems. When you start looking at generation X, you see a shift starting to happen. In other words, this is the generation that could be currently taking care of their parents or some other loved one, older adult. So they understand stress and burnout and they are willing to admit it more. Now, when you go under that millennials, definitely they're gung ho. They talk about mental health. They're all for it. They refuse to accept the stigma that maybe their parents and grandparents had. And then under that, if you look at generation Z, you're going to see an even greater acceptance and, um, exposure of mental health and discussions about it. They do it a lot on social media and they're not afraid to talk about it. I, I want to talk about some of the, um, what I deem is different layers of this, of this whole notion of stigma. I just like to have you comment on them. And, and the first one is sort of the, the, the public <laughs> stigma. That's the larger message, not just in communities of color, but also in white communities that creates sort of a negative discriminatory attitude about those with mental health. Um, your, your, your thoughts on that? I think in general, the stigma still exists about, especially we see a lot of it now recently with mass shootings. Everyone points to mental health, mental health, mental health. This is the issue. This is why we're having mass shootings. And while that can play a role and be a part of it, that's not the whole picture. Then there are lots of other issues surrounding that. So the stigma is really surrounding mental health all comes back to weakness, like this victim blaming phenomenon where if you are depressed, like what did you do to cause yourself to be depressed? Like, what aren't you doing? What could you be doing? What's wrong with you? Because there's this, this whole like American value, right? Of strength, of independence, of perseverance. And so when you admit that you have a mental health issue, that really kind of expresses to people that, you know what, I do need help in this area. And that kind of goes against what a lot of us have, have learned over the years. Well, and, and you just sort of weaved in, I'll just have you expound on if you would, that the, the, the self-stigma that we can create on our own, the, the, the negative attitudes that we embrace by even being in that condition, and that we in, internalize, dare I say, some shame about mental illness. There is a lot of shame that is involved in mental illness. And it all, all goes back to the stigma, stigma that I just mentioned about stigma from the American culture. That's one layer, if you think about you know, layers here. Then you have stigma from your racial or ethnic or cultural group. And then you have maybe your family within that. So it could be your extended family, immediate family. You have that layer. So all this, these different expectations and standards of being 
that people have to contend with before they even decide to admit that they have a mental health issue and then take it a step further and decide to get help from it. So the shame is a piece of that. Like, oh, if I have to admit this, what does that say about me? What are people going to say about me? And then like that lower level is what does that mean about me to me? Like, what does this say about me? How do I have to look at myself now? There is a lot of shame involved in it because no one wants to be seen as needy or weak or deficient in any way. And sometimes that is a big part of the healing and therapy process with people, getting them to understand that it does not mean that they are deficient or weak or inadequate in any way. You, you sort of touched on this last area earlier, but I'd like to have you say more about it. And I'm going to call it, uh, for lack of a better word, I'm going to call it the institutional stigma, sort of more systemic. You talked about uh, people of color, black people uh, in general, not having the luxury where well, I'm just going to take a few days off, or I'm just going to, you know, I don't have, they don't have that type of luxury. So talk about that sort of more systemic institutional st stigma uh, from, from policies of government, of, uh, private organizations, some of it's intentionally, some of it's unintentionally, um, that's sort of pervasive in, in, in our culture. I think when you're referring to systemic, you mean like some of the systems that we're involved in, let's say, um, healthcare, right? So healthcare. Well, yeah, I would say, uh, yeah, but, but just in, even some ways, if, if I'm an HR person, I might create policies not even thinking about that they may be harmful to someone with, with uh, mental health disorders. I, I don't have to think about that. So there's a lot of ways, subtle and not subtle. So go, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, well, yeah, when I think about policies, I guess different workplaces would have different policies about what sick days versus not. Uh, going to the doctor, that's a big one I see in patients. Um, needing to get time off, but you don't need a whole day. So you don't need to take a sick day. You just need an hour or two for therapy and how is that built into your workplace environment? So systems don't really support that. Typically traditional systems are right. You have to take a whole day off or a half day, but what if you don't need a half day? What if you don't have a half day in time? So that would be a system. Um, and then healthcare hasn't, you know, if we face it, healthcare hasn't always been accepting of marginalized group or minority groups coming in complaining or experiencing mental health issues. And there are lots of studies about how medical providers overlook things when minorities go in to see like their primary care physician and they complain of depression, a doctor could simply overlook, dismiss, minimize your concerns. That happens, that still happens. So systems don't always support people of color getting help. Systems don't always support people of color expressing and being recognized for, for having these issues. So in a, in a month, dedicated to minority mental health what what would you see as some of the uh tasks involved to sort of reduce the stigma associated with with, with uh, mental health and thereby minimizing those who are indeed suffering in silence what i would task um, for people this month because it's minority mental health month are some things that we can all do really as a community as a society and recognize and acknowledge that all people, but especially minority groups, have an overwhelming burden of issues, obligations, responsibilities, discriminations that they deal with on a daily basis. So why wouldn't they suffer from mental health issues? In fact, I would say that 
I would expect minority groups to suffer from mental health issues more so than the general population because of the levels of gender discrimination, racial discrimination, religious discrimination, um, social economic discrimination, all of these types of discrimination that they face. So we need to recognize and understand that we are allowed to suffer. We are allowed to express when we have needs and when we need help. And we need to start listening to each other when we give out signs that, that, we're, that we're struggling in life. So would it be fair to say, uh, based on your last answer, that we talked about strength and weakness earlier, that the strength would be in acknowledging the issue and, 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 and uh, as opposed to uh, remaining silent? Yes, I, I think the strength comes in having the courage to acknowledge when you are struggling and when you are having challenges in life that you need help with. I think it's easier to really suppress it and try to go on as if you don't have those issues. But what typically happens is when people don't acknowledge it and they choose to suppress it is you end up seeing that spiral over and over. So now it starts off maybe as being something that impacts their sleep and their work environment. But as it spirals, now it affects their relationship, their marriage, their friendships, their parenting, et cetera, et cetera, because they have really allowed it to get out of hand. Back uh, at the beginning of, of the 2000s, I was a, I was a columnist back in, for the Oakland Tribune in Oakland, California. And I wrote a, a piece about mental health and that um, uh, and, and, and acknowledgement of my own struggles with it. And uh, normally, I mean, personally, not, not the post, but personally, I'll get anywhere from, depending on the topic of the column, I'll get anywhere from 15 to 25 emails responding directly to me on my column. Uh-huh. On this particular piece, I received over 600 emails directly to me, not not even counting the comments on the page. And people were saying things to me. I mean, they were thanking me for saying and writing about it. They were saying things to me like, well, don't repeat this. Don't don't share this with anyone. I'm not out to my family yet. I mean, people were actually stopping me on the street for a couple of weeks. And so when I share that type of story with you, what does that tell you about the mental health that many of us are living with. Wow, and first of all, I think it's disappointing and disheartening to know that that still exists, but it's this, this the stigma, it's the shame. In other words, what they're telling you is that my parents have these expectations of me that really encompass resilience, strength, no weakness, no signs of weakness, no struggle. And I have to portray that to my family and my friends. And so this would not be acceptable. So what that means is that there is no room for them to have needs or to get help or to need assistance in any way. And I think that, that that's pretty disappointing. That's what it tells me though. Um, um, you sort of touched on it, but one area we haven't talked about um, We've talked about, you know, job and the pressures and the stigma. What impact has COVID played in this dilemma? COVID, for many people in minority groups, COVID has really amplified what they were already feeling pre-pandemic. So in other words, if they were anxious before the pandemic, now with COVID, they are a lot more anxious. If they were depressed before the pandemic, they are a lot more depressed now. 
um, stress has really played a role in many people's lives during the pandemic, especially when you think about um, most of us going outside of the home for work and then all of a sudden being shifted to virtual working at home. Well, home is not the same for everyone, especially if you have children, school-age children. So now you have to kind of homeschool them in a sense while they do virtual learning. If you have other people, animals in the house, you have to take care of all of that in the midst of working. So it's really shifted the way people work, but in the realm of that, it's created more, more challenges for people to do what they were normally doing. And then of course, if you add the uncertainty of the pandemic, that has really impacted people's levels of stress because not knowing what's happening next with the pandemic has really been a challenge for people. In another area, talk, talk in, a, in the time we have remaining, talk about some of the, how does this impact society at large? Um, I'm assuming in a negative way, but can you talk about some, some of these mental health disorders, especially those that are going untreated in the large community as well as communities of color? What's the impact on society from, from, from this? Um, the impact of society from minority groups, mental health? The impact on society. If we have if we have large numbers, like, like like the stat I gave you earlier, that um half the people who have a mental health disorder are not being treated, and you you said that 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 number may be even higher in communities of color and African American communities. What's the impact of that reality on, on society of, of people large numbers going around untreated with mental health disorders? Oh, I think it's going to be a, a huge impact on society um, in various areas. One area I can think about with people. So as more people, minority groups have experienced more mental health issues and they're not being treated for them. So in other words, they're not under the care of a psychiatrist or psychologist or counselor on a regular basis. Then what's going to happen typically is they're going to end up somaticizing their mental health issues, meaning that they're going to experience and feel that in their body somewhere whether that comes out in migraines, stomach issues. And then so then they're going to be now funneled into urgent care, ERs across the country, primary care offices. So it's going to start to flood the system in those ways. That's one way. Then if we look at work environments um, and different jobs, like the more mental health, the more people experience mental health issues that work for your organization, the more time they're going to end up trying to take off, the more they're going to be at work and not be productive. So you're going to see a lot of things shift. The more morale, energy, motivation in the workplace is going to decline. Um, schooling. So now as mental health and minority communities exacerbates. So now these are parents, right? So now we're gonna see more issues with their children in schools, more behavioral issues, more academic issues, more social issues because of the parents' experiences and what they're dealing with with mental health. So, so many different areas, and that's just a few where it's going to be like a blowback and you'll see like this trickle down of how it affects different systems. I'm assuming while some of those things, especially in the workplace that, that, that you just referred, uh, the pushback is, well, George is not a team player, or George doesn't have what it takes, when, when really the issue is something much larger than George's um, ability to do the job at hand. The issue is much larger. And as, as a country, I do see some changes in, in this country as far as how we acknowledge mental health and how we support mental health, definitely more than I saw 20 years ago, but it's gonna take a whole lot more. We're gonna to have to invest more money in training to push out more providers so that they have availability. We're gonna to have to reform uh, insurances, 
and get more services for people. It's so many things that have to happen in order for people to have the services that they need in this area. Um, talk about, if you would, some of the strategies. Uh, again, I want to come back. This is Minority Mental Health Month. So what are some of the strategies to overcome some of the barriers that, that exist in communities of color uh, to overcome some of those obstacles that you talked about earlier in our conversation? Um, well, one of the larger barriers that I see with people um, that are in marginalized groups or minority groups is the availability of resources. So uh, if I take St. Louis, for example, and in the urban or metropolitan city area of St. Louis, there are only a handful of providers for mental health, meaning like community health centers, um, psychiatric centers. There are very, very few. So that means you have to go now to where the providers are. So they may not be in the area where you live. So therein lies other issues, right? You got to get there. So you have transportation issues sometimes. If you have um, certain commercial insurances, co-pays, you have to have the co-pay to be able to pay for the session, depending on where your insurance is. Then you have to first find the provider that is accepting new patients or new clients, get in, get to it, have childcare to be able to go to it sometimes. There's just so many things that would have to be modified in the community. So to make it accessible for everyone, because right now it is not accessible to everyone. Would that, would that also include sort of demystifying the notion that mental health disorders is equivalent to being crazy? Yes. Um, a lot of community education or public health education would need to be done in that area to really normalize mental health. And like I said earlier, I think millennials and Generation Z have done a really great job of doing that on social media. And in the press, they talk about it. They're not afraid to mention it. They're not afraid to call it out. So I think the more that that happens in the community and society, the more people will start to notice and feel more comfortable talking about it. And if they feel more comfortable talking about it, that means they're going to feel more comfortable acknowledging when they themselves experience issues in those areas. Um, though uh, we have, uh, we broadcast from WSNC and in uh, Winston-Salem, uh, we are also recorded in Huntsville, Alabama, but the podcast version of this broadcast goes all over the country. Someone listening to this broadcast may have questions or want additional information. In a, in a sort of broad sense, what might be the best place for them to start? You know, there are lots of areas out um, that you can go to get information on. One area where you can find on a website is NAMI, so N-A-M-I, which is the National Alliance of Mental Illness. Uh, NAMI has been around for many years, but they have a really comprehensive website that has resources, tools, and, and all of that. So it's been around for a long time, and most um, larger cities have a NAMI group in their local area. Um, I would also suggest a company called MedCircle medcircle.com, and they have lots of information on mental health issues, videos, workshops, classes, things that can give you more of an in-depth look about certain types of mental health issues or and or certain types of treatment for mental health issues. So um, I'm just really happy that there are lots of resources out there now for people to find this. Um, all of this didn't exist 20, 30 years ago. Dr. Jamika Woody Cooper, I want to thank you uh, for joining us today on the Public Morality. It's been much appreciated to, to have your insight and counsel.
Stay tuned as we continue our focus on Minority Mental Health Awareness Month on the Public Morality. Welcome back. As we continue our discussion about Minority Mental Health Awareness Month, I'm now joined by Professor Karen Lincoln. Professor Lincoln is an associate professor and director of the USC Hartford Center of Excellence in Geriatric Social Work at the University of Southern California, located in Los Angeles. Professor Karen Lincoln, welcome to The Public Morality. Thank you, it's a pleasure to be here. July is Minority Mental Health Month. And I wanna begin this conversation by having you respond to the following. Um, uh, why is it necessary uh, to, to make a distinction uh, for Minority Mental Health Month. May was Mental Health Awareness Month. Why set aside a month for people of color? Mental health doesn't see color. How do you respond to that? Well, that's a very good question. I think that um, mental health does see color, actually. <laughs> um, and that is evidenced in the disparities by race and ethnicity with respect to certain mental health disorders. Um, the rise in suicide among um, African-American children, for example, has been about 71% um, for Black children uh, 18 and younger over the past year or so. Um, with respect to treatment, uh, I think that, you know, disparities in treatment for mental health disorders by race and ethnicity are still prevalent. We haven't really addressed them the way that we should. And so I do think that um, we need to really focus on minority mental health because we still aren't seeing improvements in mental health across certain minority groups. And then COVID, of course, has brought in a, a whole host of other considerations that have um, specifically uh, impacted uh, minority groups. Um, so if you take sort of the previous disparities concerns with mental health and minorities and you add on to that this pandemic, I mean, we're in for you know, an interesting time with respect to what I believe will be gaps in disparities of care um, with respect to people of color. So when you say challenges, I'd like to have you drill down more on that. Are we talking about sociological factors, physical factors, uh, work environments, schooling? What, what, what specifically are, we, are you referring to? Well, just if we can focus on any of those things, but I think that with respect to access um, to mental health care, with in terms of minority um, children, adolescents, adults, older adults, um, we don't yet have the capacity to really address that. So access is beyond, is there a place for you to go? Um, in some instances, there isn't a place for people to go to get treatment. And in other instances, um, there isn't a competent place for people to go to get treatment, whether it's a lack of cultural sensitivity or an understanding of some of the social factors that need to be addressed with respect to mental health that aren't just psychic, um, with the physical health factors that need to be addressed um, that go beyond you know, psychic and psychology. So I, I do think that there are, you know, it's a broader range of social determinants and societal determinants that we don't yet factor into um, mental health treatment. So again, access is beyond just having some place to go and the ability to pay for it. It's, is it competent? Um, and do we recognize the symptoms? Do we understand as providers that oftentimes, you know, people of color will experience mental health problems more physically um, than mentally, you know, and do we understand, you know, how to treat that 
And then of course the, the various barriers that we ourselves have in terms of seeking treatment. So it's, it's very broad. Well, I, I was struck by something you just said in your last answer about that uh, more prone to show symptoms. Uh, you say physically, they were more prone to show symptoms physically, is that, was that? Yes, that is true. Okay, uh, say more about that. Because I, I don't think people associate mental health with, 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 with those physical disorders. So could you say more about that? Sure. Well, I can speak to African-Americans specifically, and this is also true of some Latinx groups um, and some Asian groups as well, whereby uh, many of us might experience, say, depression um, as headaches or stomach aches, um, sometimes a loss of appetite, but they're more physical symptoms than feeling blue, feeling depressed, necessarily being tired, right? And so oftentimes we're treated for physical health symptoms, when in fact we're experiencing more mental health um, symptoms. And what role, uh, because this, I think in every, everything that happens, uh, most things happen with people of color, what role, if any, does institutional racism play on mental health for people of color? Oh, well, what role doesn't it play? I think that's the question. I think that um, whether it's um, the lack of access to care with respect to available resources in communities, um, whether it's how we're educated and access to education, not just who um, are enrolled or admitted or who applies to uh, institutions of higher learning so they can be trained to treat people of color it's the type of education that people receive once they get there um, with generally a lack of acknowledgement that, that mental health disparities and health disparities still exist and or the lack of training um, for providers to really understand the correlates, the causes and how to um, screen for and treat people who are experiencing um, stressors uh, in their neighborhoods, stressors in their jobs, stressors in their school and the social environment and what that means with respect to, to health um, and what that means with respect to treatment. You know, if you have someone who is experiencing violence or is experiencing racial discrimination um, and then as a result might be experiencing depression or anxiety, what does that look like with respect to treatment? Um, and so I think that institutional racism really does um, limit uh, the extent to which we are able to get uh, competent, reliable, sens uh, sensitive treatment um, with respect to providers, with very few people of color, particularly African-Americans, who are physicians um, compared to the number of us who need physicians, who are mental health providers compared to the number of us who need mental health providers, et cetera. Now, does one's income status have any bearing here, or is it... Uh, Many of uh, different income levels create different challenges that lead pretty much to the same outcome. Um, I think it's both. So yes, so income status um, is important with respect to being able to pay for care. Um, income status oftentimes will determine where you live, which will also determine whether you have access to resources 
Um, we know that in wealthier communities, there happens to be more mental health providers that are located in those communities versus poorer communities. But when you think about the great equalizer, something that I study in terms of discrimination, racial discrimination in particular, um, it's interesting that many uh, African-Americans who have higher SES will often report higher levels of racial discrimination. If you sort of add them up and come up with a score, the score might be higher um, for African-Americans who have higher levels of education and higher levels of income, but it has to do with where they're experiencing um, racial discrimination. So for example, in general, many African-Americans can report being stopped by a police officer, um, but those with the higher SES are more likely to report not being um, given the same type of service as whites, um, being um, discriminated against um, living in certain neighborhoods, buying homes, being promoted in jobs versus lower SES African-Americans more likely to report different types of discrimination um, related to renting, related to being stopped in stores, um, and related to um, being discouraged against pursuing higher education. Oftentimes, when we think of mental health, um, our focus is, is primarily, you've touched it earlier, but primarily our focus has been on adults. Talk about some of the factors that impact uh, the mental health of children, uh, especially ch um, children of color. I, I have uh, several here I'd like to have you drill in on specifically, so I'll just, I'll just start with those and please add if I'm, I've left something out. But uh, I'll start with uh, sexual and physical abuse. So sexual and physical abuse, obviously, um, during childhood is a sort of considered a, a childhood adversity that not only has implications for children um, while they're a child, but has implications throughout the life course. So if they experience this type of abuse during childhood, um, and maybe if it's even um, one incident, it has implications for them when they're older. But I think, you know, part of the issue with um, sexual abuse in children, particularly among children of color, is some of our sort of cultural understandings of, of sexual abuse and, you know, the shame around it, whether we report it or not, who's more likely um, to be the perpetrator um, versus other communities and how do we internally sort of handle and respond um, to those types of incidents. And so I think sexual abuse will have an impact on all children. Um, one of the things that we have to contend with though, is how within our communities, how we respond to that um, with respect to getting the child help. We don't often seek help for our own mental health. Um, it's less likely that we do so for our children. Um, the perpetrator, again, if it's a, it's a family member, um, how we handle that internally, how we respond to that and what that means for the, the child mental health. So I think, I just wanna reiterate that, you know, it's an issue for all children, but I think we, we sort of um, underestimate the impact of culture in terms of how we might respond or how we might not respond to, uh, to sexual abuse um, within, our, within our families. Well, well tangentially, when you, when you mentioned culture, um, I, this, I asked this in the first segment, um, how does the historical, the role in your view of the historical black church in this mental health equation? Well, you know, African-Americans are one of the most religious um, racial groups in the country, um, more so than any racial or ethnic group um, in the country, quite frankly. Um, we're predominantly Christian. Um, 
of course, we occupy and have, you know, denominational affiliations across a number of different types of, of beliefs, but we're predominantly Christian. And so part of that uh, within our culture does um, suggest that we handle whether it's sexual abuse or mental health a little differently based on religious beliefs. And so uh, the church, the black church does have, um, it does play a very strong role in, in mental health, whether we're seeking assistance from our pastor or other congregants or within our church. Um, one of the things that's really important with respect to mental health is, you know, how likely is the pastor or pastoral staff how likely are they to refer a congregant to um, external resources or how likely are they to suggest other types of ways of dealing with mental health concerns like, like praying, right? Um, versus seeking professional mental health treatment. And so I think, you know, these are, um, churches are very important for African-American communities in particular with respect to mental health because they can both pose a barrier to seeking treatment, and they can also be a facilitator to seeking treatment. Well, just stay with that for just a second. When, when, when you said that how um, apt is the pastor or pastoral staff to uh, refer someone to seek professional care, um, doesn't that run up against, uh, if I'm said pastor and I refer Joe to professional care, and th doesn't that also send the message culturally that I'm not adequate for the job if I'm the pastor, and so I don't want to give that impression. I'm not saying that's true, but is that also a concern? It could be a concern um, if you see mental health as a um, indicator of faith or lack thereof. You know, if you see uh, mental health concerns as something internal or spiritual or somehow associated with belief, but if you see it as um, a clinical um, concern. That's something that is outside of the training of a pastor to uh, address, then no, it doesn't. I think that it makes um, the pastor's role very important and, and it sort of um, indicates that they're being responsible. I mean, to be able to say, well, you know, I'm an expert in these areas, but this is outside of my expertise and I'm going to refer you to someone who has the proper training um, to deal with the concerns. But it doesn't mean also that you know, just because a person might have some mental health concerns, it might need some type of clinical treatment that there aren't those other spiritual concerns um, that need to be addressed by the pastor. So I think there's an opportunity for pastors to partner with professionals um, when it comes to properly treating um, their congregants with respect to, you know, concerns about mental health. Mm -hmm. And it's going back to, to my um, challenges uh, for children, of color concern. Uh, what about the role of bullying? Yeah, I'm not an expert in, in bullying, but I do, I think that, you know, it has come on the radar and it's, it's a topic that's been talked about um, more and more, um, particularly cyber bullying. And I think that um, when I was growing up, I don't even think we called it bullying. <laughs> we just, you know, it was just, it's not a term that we used, although that's probably what was actually happening. Um, I think that with children, um, particularly children of color, boys, um, black boys in particular, um, with respect to, you know, culturally what they're told 
um, in terms of, you know, snitching or being able to fend for yourself, fight for yourself, not to cry. Uh, I think that there are some concerns uh, with respect to being ha having that open line of communication when a child is being bullied for them to be able to tell a parent or tell a teacher um, without being seen as a snitch. Um, and that can be, um, can have very uh, unhealthy and detrimental consequences. Uh, and so I, I do think with respect to race and, and ethnicity and culture, that some children of color have different types of um, concerns and barriers when it comes to bullying and who they tell um, and, um, and what they share. So I think the open line of communication, um, racial socialization, how we're raising our children to understand you know, when to tell and what to tell and when it's okay to tell and who to talk to you know, is really important. And so there are some cultural barriers there. And it's quite, it's quite concerning, quite frankly, um, from my perspective. The next one is uh, substance abuse. Well, you know, again, that's outside of my expertise. Um, and I think that, you know, I think we do know that there is a relationship between um, substance abuse among children and substance abuse among adults or their parents and what they see. Uh, I also think and, and know that um, many of our children are um, managing their own stress and anxiety through the use of substances. Uh, and, and one can only do that if it's available, right? And so uh, it becomes a concern about access. And there is also quite a bit of evidence in terms of our drug of choice, right? So African-Americans in particular are less likely to use um, you know, cocaine and heroin and those types of drugs and even alcohol. They're more likely to use marijuana, for example, which we know is a gateway. And so um, one is you know, access um, to drugs versus access to mental health treatment, right? Um, and the type of drugs that we're using, uh, particularly marijuana, which can be a gateway um, to other types of, of drugs. And so I think that Oftentimes, um, drugs might be used recreationally, but we also have to understand that oftentimes they're used to cope. Uh, and it does signal that there may be fewer opportunities to receive appropriate treatment for our concerns and for our stress, and we're using what's available to us. Now, my, my, my last one here, uh, I know does not apply to all uh, children of color and doesn't and to all African-Americans specifically, but what about the impact of violence in one's community? Violence causes a tremendous amount of trauma uh, to children. And sometimes it goes unrecognized, the extent to which it impacts children. Vicarious violence, like violence that may not even be direct to the child, but can be seen on, on TV whether they're watching you know, George Floyd or some other um, violent act that's being committed against a person that looks like them does have an impact on children, but even violence within the neighborhood. I mean, it's, it's a type of trauma um, that can go unrecognized. And you know, parents, if, if children are experiencing violence, have been exposed to violence in some way, we might see, uh, we might hear a child complaining of stomach aches or headaches. That's usually when you start to see those psychosomatic symptoms in children um, when they're having distress related um, to violence. But violence is a um, very important factor 
that can trigger all types of, of stress responses, um, that has a physiological reaction um, that children have to violence, and that can have very significant impacts on not just their um, emotional development, but their physical and mental development as well. So we cannot underestimate the impact um, of violence on children and their development. Is mental health in general, or can mental health in general, be hereditary? There are some genetic factors that could potentially link certain types of mental health disorders at the genetic level. Um, there may be um, certain genetic you know, predispositions that we might have that could be triggered by social influences um, or physical influences or factors that can then lead to mental health disorders. But it is really important to know that with, for the most part, with respect to mental health disorders, it's caused by more external environments, um, social environments and, and stressors. Although, you know, we are genetically predispos predisposed to um, maybe being depressed or having anxiety or maybe even having sort of schizophrenia or bipolar disorder at the genetic level. But again, it's something that's external to ourselves that might trigger um, those types of disorders, just like cancer genes. We all have them. We all have cancer genes. Um, and we all have, you know, the ability, um, the predisposition to have cancer, but it's usually something that's external that might trigger um, and turn those genes on. And that's often what happens with, with mental health disorders is it's something that's external to the individual um, that is the precipitant um, for mental health disorders. Well, I'm also wondering um, that if you grew up in a house where mental health was seen as a weakness, um, if, if um, I'm telling the story about a, a, a relative and, and instead of saying what happened, I said he was cleaning the gun and it accidentally went off, and which uh, and ironically, that was, the, that was the initial story when Ernest Hemingway killed himself, that the gun just accidentally went off, he was on his way hunting. And so mental health is seen as this thing of shame. Um, is there an impact or does it matter that, that, we, that we're, families are in denial of what actually happened to other loved ones and sort of passing that shame on? Does that play a role also? It, it does play a role, that stigma. You know, the stigma associated with mental health um, is a huge barrier to, to treatment, to being able to recognize the symptoms, to um, speaking about it, to seeking help uh, if we see mental health as a weakness. And oftentimes it, it is seen as a weakness by, you know, some families. It's some, somehow a, a weakness of, of, you know, someone's personality or, or their level of strength. In reality, it has nothing to do with any of that. Um, it's a disorder. And I think, you know, if we see it as a weakness, um, then we allow for it to fester, just like any wound, right? If mental health disorders are not treated, they get worse. Um, and initially, if we can recognize the symptoms that we actually are looking at someone who's experiencing mental distress, you know, these things can be treated without meds, you know, because meds can sometimes, you know, turn people off with respect to seeking treatments, not all mental health conditions need to be treated with, with medication. But if we don't treat these things early, particularly in children, it just gets worse. They don't get better on their own, right? And it becomes clinical 
which means you can't treat them without medication. And these are the kinds of things, untreated mental health leads to suicide. It leads to all other types, you know, different types of mental disorders, as well as physical health disorders, misconduct, difficulty in social situations, difficulty in school, difficulty getting a job. I mean, it reverberates across the life course. And so if we continue to believe um, that mental health disorder is some type of a personal weakness, we really are um, creating a, a very difficult situation, not, you know, for the individual as well as, you know, for the entire family, because it is something that, you know, um, is going to follow this person across the life course and get worse. Finally, is, is, is there a, a central message uh, for those listening that you'd like to convey during uh, Minority Mental Health Month? Yeah, you know, mental health um, is no different than your physical health. And just as much as you take care of your physical health or are told to take care of your physical health, you must give that same consideration and concern and import to your mental health. Um, they're, they're combined, they're one and the same, they affect each other and they're both important. And so it's very important um, for us to take care of ourselves, uh, our mental health, our emotional health. It's good for you, it's good for your family. Um, and I think it should be treated, you know, just as, as, as much as, um, as you would treat your physical health. So if you have physical health concerns, if you're concerned about diabetes, if you're concerned about hypertension, if you're concerned about your weight, um, if you're concerned about the food that you put in your body, you want to have that same concern for your mental health. Professor Karen Lincoln, University of Southern California, I want to thank you uh, for joining me today on the public morality. Really appreciated your, your insights today. Thank you so much for the conversation. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Prime, and SoundCloud. Those listening to the Public Rally on WSNC can now listen on its app. Using your mobile device, simply go to your application page, search WSNC 90.5, and click Open to listen from anywhere. And once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WGAB in Huntsville, Alabama, for allowing us to broadcast the Public Rally at their studios. The Public Rally is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, for all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.